But the good news for us is that the Spirit of God who is present at Pentecost, who was present in David's life, is present in our lives, present to accomplish all the purposes that good King Jesus has ordained for us. And the Spirit of God is no dummy. He knows how to orchestrate all of the trials and the adversities and the uncertainties of our life to take the dark nights of our soul, those difficult days that we go through, and weave them together into God's good plan. Because it is of Him and through Him and to Him that all things are. He is marching forward with the plan of the ages. And if you are in Jesus Christ, you have a place in that plan for good and for glory. I'd like you to take your Bible and open it again to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 19. This is part two of a study we began last week called Assassins All Around. The Los Angeles area is famous for freeways, isn't it? In fact, this is supposedly the birthplace of freeways. Where I grew up, though, in the D.C. area is the birthplace of another road phenomenon, the carpool lane. It was actually in... Uh, inside the Beltway in Northern Virginia back in 1969 that the first carpool lane was invented and it was originally for buses only and after a few years they toyed with letting groups of four or more go on and then three or more and it was really confusing for a while because what in the world did HOV mean? High occupancy vehicle and exactly how many people did you need to be on this and it changed and the, the HOV lanes they made there were reversible so these two lanes in the middle went one way in the morning and the other way in the afternoon, and you had to make sure you didn't hop on the wrong one at the wrong time. Of course, it wasn't long before some people figured out ways to cheat the system. I remember as a boy in the news in the 80s hearing the story of a man who was pulled over for speeding in the carpool lane, and he seemed unusually nervous, and the officer was kind of puzzled about that, and he peeked in the back and found something like that, a mannequin in the back seat to boost up his numbers to let him on the road. Now you Google that sort of thing and you will find there have been many impersonators over the years who still keep getting caught. And they all think they're clever until they're caught. And then they get that big fat ticket and they now who's the dummy? <laughs> well this morning we're coming to a text in 1 Samuel 19 where we find David getting help in his escape from Saul and it involves a dummy, not in the car, but a dummy put in the bed to buy him some time while he flees from Saul. In this chapter, David is beginning what will be years of fleeing for his life from King Saul. In this chapter alone, there are four attempts on his life, and three of those times he receives help from friends whom God used to deliver him. We're seeing in this story how God used three heroes to deliver David, his chosen one, from Saul, who had become the enemy of God's kingdom plan. Last week, we saw how Jonathan, the peacemaker, stood up for David to his father. And today, we'll see more about how McCall, the escape maker, helped out David. And next week, the Lord willing, we'll see how Samuel, the kingmaker, took David in. 
I want to briefly review what we talked about last week in verses 1 to 7. Jonathan, the peacemaker, stood up for David. Those, uh, that story begins with Saul issuing assassination orders in the beginning of verse 1, that Saul told Jonathan, his son, and all his servants to put David to death. And then the rest of those verses is about Jonathan's peacemaking moves, how he pleads with his father about the, unreasonable, the unreasonableness of this, that David hadn't done anything against him, and if Saul were to do this, he would be sinning. And Saul actually makes a temporary truce, and he makes a, a vow he won't keep uh, saying that uh, David can come back, and he comes back, but we know how it goes. It doesn't go well. Saul reneges on his oath. And then the next section start, is about McCall, David's wife, the escape maker. She helped out David in verses 8 through 17. Actually, the first couple of verses are McCall is not mentioned, but she's tightly connected with this story. David finds himself in a very unexpected need, and it's so unexpected because verse 8 tells us about how he'd fought the Philistines and defeated them and made them flee, and the next thing we read is David has to flee because Saul starts to treat him like a Philistine, like the enemy, and so he makes a flight from his own king, a king who again tried to impale him with the spear in the royal house. We're told that David fled, and the first place he fled was home, and that's where our reading picks up today. Today, we're going to study McCall's unorthodox plan. I'd like us to read verses, well, let's back up to verse 10, and we'll read through verse 17. Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence so that he stuck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. And Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michal let David down through a window, and he went out and fled and escaped. Michal took the household idol and laid it on the bed, and put a quilt of goat's hair on its head and covered it with clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He's sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me on his bed, that I may put him to death. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with the quilt of goat's hair at its head. So Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he's escaped? And McCall said to David, he said to me, let me go. Why should I put you to death? This is uh, McCall's unorthodox plan. There are a number of things about it that are not quite orthodox, which we'll talk about in the course of our study. Note with me first how in verse 11, assassins have again been dispatched. The first half of verse 11 reads again, Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. Saul is treating David just like David had treated the Philistines. He's making him run for his life. He's just tried to kill him that same evening. 
And assuming he's fled home uh, to their, the royal house where McCall is, he sends these um, <clears throat> messengers. <laughs> They're just henchmen. You know, this is not a message you want to receive. The house in which they're staying was probably a gift from Saul when David had married his daughter, McCall. It's probably a prominent home. It might even have been on the city wall. That might explain how he's able to escape. And their task is to arrest him in the morning, if possible, to take him alive. And maybe they're doing that to avoid distressing McCall too much. But she knows more than they credit her with. In the morning, things are supposed to go down. Now, tonight, I, uh, Steve mentioned I'm going to be teaching from Psalm 59, and that's because that psalm is written out of the events of this story. In fact, the heading tells us it's when, uh, when David was let out from the window and was fleeing from Saul. And it's interesting that that psalm mentions hope coming in the morning. Flip forward briefly to Psalm 59, verse 16. Psalm 59. In fact, before you look at verse 16, look at the heading to Psalm 59. You'll see what I was referring to. Psalm 59, the heading says, For the choir director set to Al-Tasheth, a mechtam of David, when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. And down at verse uh, 16, But as for me, I shall sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning. For you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. They saw the morning as an opportunity to take him. David saw the morning as a token of God's grace and the deliverance that he experienced. God delivered him that morning. You know, there are plenty of times when you and I are in the dark of situations where we don't know what the future holds. It might be a literal night of anxiety and prayer for the sickness of a loved one, not sure how it's going to go, whether you're going to get the help that you need. It might be a metaphorical night of distress, maybe some season of unease, some uncertainty that has no seeming end to it. I can't promise you how every single one of your trials may turn out. There are sad days and sad outcomes for sure. But the gospel assures us who know Jesus Christ that every day God has good news for us. That Christ has died for us and is alive for us and is with us and is coming again. And that one day the night of this life is going to pass into an eternal day in which our sorrows will seem like a distant memory. Yes, you will have sorrows in this journey of life, this life that you live for Christ's sake, but one day the day star is going to arise. David found deliverance on this particular day after these assassins were dispatched. And the way that God brought, God brought about deliverance here was in a very unorthodox plan. So the assassins have been dispatched, but notice how the escape plan has been hatched. In the end of verse 11, uh, the first thing, uh, part of this plan is that the husband is going to go out the window, and not in a divorce kind of way. Verse 11 ends by saying, McCall, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. 
David had married her, we're told in the previous chapter, in chapter 18, verse 27. Uh, through the rest of the book of uh, Samuel, she is uh, sometimes called McCall, David's wife, and sometimes she's called McCall, Saul's daughter. Of course, she's both, but the way she's labeled kind of depends on what's going on in the story. In this case, she's there to help David. There'll be other times when she's more of a hindrance to David. Here, she's a heroine, though we do have some questions for her about some of the things that she does. In this case, she understood what her father was up to. She had seen enough and heard enough in the royal court to know, know things were very, very bad. This was not just some passing manic phase that Saul was going through. She could tell this was different from those other times where he had relented and, and brought David back. So verse 12, here's the first part of the plan that's hatched. So McCall let down David, let David down through a window. And he went out and fled and escaped. Gustav Doré, Doré, the famous uh, sketch artist, drew this uh, depiction of what that looked like. And uh, I, I suspect that it didn't like, look so European. In fact, here are some remains of the wall of Gibeon, Gibeah, where Saul was and where David's house was. The walls would have been a bit higher. It is likely, though, that that window that she let him out from uh, was on the outside of the city wall, just like uh, Rahab the harlot had let the spies out. Um, and uh, also we're told some other people were let out through windows. You know, it's uh, not the best way to make a run for things, squeezing out a window. We always feel a little bit embarrassed when we have to make entry or exit through a window, don't we? You, you've had that experience where you've locked your keys in the house and you've got to find that one bathroom window that you left open. Or maybe you've locked your keys in the car and you've got to crawl in through the hatchback or something like that. It, you, you look ridiculous and maybe a little bit suspicious. It, it's not the most dignified kind of entry. And so here is the future king of Israel making a rather inglorious exit. Sometimes God gets us through things in ways that we might not choose. Sometimes he doesn't open doors for us. Sometimes he opens windows that we have to squeeze through. And that's all right. Don't think any less of God when he gives you a window <laughs> instead of a door. He's still there working his plan for you. I think of the Apostle Paul. You know, Paul was let out through a window to an escape. And I want you to turn to two passages with me. The first is in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, where the story happens. Acts chapter 9. Paul is, uh, actually at this point, he's going by his older name, Saul, which is ironic. Acts chapter 9, he's in Damascus, and in verse 23 we read, When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. This scene, this experience really struck Paul. He mentions it himself in one of his letters. And I want you to continue forward in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 
verses 32 to 33. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aratus the king was guarding the city of the Damascusines and ordered, Seize me! And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hands. What an event. You'll never forget that mission trip. Isn't it kind of ironic that uh, at this point in the apostle's life, he's going by the name Saul? And in the New Testament, it's Saul who's let out the window. It's Saul who is the good messenger, the messenger of the gospel. And uh, so we find out that the New Testament Saul, later known as Paul, was more like David than he was like his namesake. Saul of old. God opened up a way because God wasn't done with him. He's certainly not done with David because back here in 1 Samuel 19, we remember in the context that Samuel has anointed David and with that come all sorts of promises that God has a future and a plan for him. David, as it were, knew he was immortal for a while until God accomplished what he had promised. So back in 1 Samuel 19, verse 12, we're told David escaped. And it's some verses later, verses we'll look at next week in verse 18, that we're told that he escaped up to Ramah, which was Samuel's hometown. But for now, the narrator has us come back to the house. And the second part of the plan is the dummy in the bed. In verses 13 to 16, um, Verse 13, McCall took the household idol and laid it on the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair at its head, covered it with clothes. Now, right away, we are confronted with a disturbing question. What on earth is she or they doing with a household idol? Now, I want you to, as much as you can, to delay worrying about that question until the end of our study this morning, but... For right now, note that whatever this thing was, and whyever she had it, it was large enough to leave a lump in the bed. And the, the kind of bed that's described here wouldn't have been just a commoner's mat of cloth on the, the ground, but as part of the royal house, this would have likely been an ornate wood frame bed. Uh, there would have been wool strapping holding together as some sort of a, a woolen mattress, probably stuffed with straw or things like that. And on this ornate bed, she puts underneath the, the clothes there a dummy. I mean, this sounds like one of those famous escapes from Alcatraz, doesn't it? Uh, this is one of the dummy heads that was used back in the 60s and one of the sort of successful escapes from Alcatraz. Um, this time, though, instead of using paper mache, she uses this household idol. She takes that dummy of an idol and uses it as a dummy in the bed. It's probably the best thing you can do with an idol. Treat it like a dummy. Now, whatever was going through McCall's mind about using that thing as the decoy, uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's very successful in deterring those who come snooping around for David. There's a reference to a quilt in this verse as well, a woolen quilt, which uh, 
might be, it could be a, a hairy sort of thing that's used to look like the hair of his head, or it could even have been uh, something like a, a fly net. They made fly nets in ancient days, and they would often use fine goat hair. So this might be over the head of the bed, making it look like he's asleep there, and he's trying to get rest, and so the flies don't bother him. And then all these clothes are piled up on it, trying to give the impression that he's not feeling well. Maybe he's got, maybe he's got the chills and they're trying to uh, get him to feel better. She gives this impression that he's sound asleep. In verse 14, it says, When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He's sick. Morning arrives, and the messengers come knocking. And again, their plan seems to be to take him alive, if possible. Probably uh, lied to McCall about what their intentions were. They... Interesting, they don't object to her story about being told that he's sick. So they suggest to me that they're trying to play it coy, and she's trying to play it coy, and she's won round one. She lies through her teeth, which is another problem that we'll talk about when we come to the end of our study. But I think her actions are motivated at least in part out of love for David. There might be other things that are motivating the way she acts. There might be uh, fear that's motivating her choices, a lack of faith perhaps. But nonetheless, there is some real love and loyalty at work there. And, you know, we see in McCall as well as other Bible characters that sometimes the, the things that motivate us are a mess. Sometimes we do things out of a mixed heart that we truly want to do what's right, but we also have mingled in with that some fear of... uh, things going wrong, and so we take things into our own hands. It's good for us, as we grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, to learn how we tick, to examine our our inner thoughts and our inner motives, to to learn as much as possible what are the things that motivate us. This is part of the role of biblical counseling, is to get people to kind of hold up the mirror of God's Word to themselves and take a look. Now, why am I responding the way I am or acting the way I am? What are the things, there's things I'm aware of, and then there may be things I'm not aware of. And the more we expose ourselves to the transforming light of God's Word, the better image we get of ourselves and what needs to change. Well, McCall is not on the couch for counseling at this point, but it's a good place for us to think about those kinds of things. Back to the story in verse 15. Messengers go back, and then uh, verse 15, Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me on his bed, that I may put him to death. The henchmen have gone back bewildered. This was not what they expected, and it's not what Saul expected, and he is not happy. So he sends them back over there with instructions to cart David out of there on his bed's mat if they have to. He's going to turn David's sickbed into a deathbed. The execution is going to be done right in Saul's sight, maybe even directly by Saul's hand. And maybe, they're again, they're doing it over at the palace to spare McCall, his daughter, from the trauma of seeing her husband manhandled. We were told in the previous chapter that she really loved David. Bring him up to me on his bed. You know, this is not the last time Saul will say words like that. Later in the book, Chapter 28, when things are going poorly for King Saul, he decides to seek the help of a witch to try to get some insight from the spiritual world, 
He'd already made a law that forbade uh, witches and witchcraft and mediums and things like that. So now, violating his own law, he, puts a, he, he becomes a disguised person, goes to the witch at Endor and says, Bring up Samuel for me. It's the same kind of phrase that's here. The bed raising there turns out to be even worse than this one. Because Saul, Saul is playing with the power of death, but it will end up consuming him and his family before this is all done. Bring him up to me, we'll put him to death. And then verse 16, when the messenger is entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with the quilt of goat's hair at its head. This time the henchmen make entry all the way into the house. They get all the way to the room where the bed is and they see with their own eyes what's there. Behold, that's the, it reflects the surprise that these men have as they see what's going on. They realize now they've been duped. All of that dead time waiting around at night when he wasn't even there, those extra trips back and forth, all such a ruse. And this plan of McCall's continues in verse 17 with an alibi for this decoy. We're told that uh, Saul interrogates McCall. So Saul said to McCall, why do you deceive me like this and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? Apparently McCall is brought to Saul instead of David so she can answer for her deception. And notice the way that Saul speaks about David. He calls him my enemy. My enemy? Really? This is an animosity completely of Saul's making. It's born out of his jealousy. It's born out of his desire to hold on to his kingdom. Uh, who cares what the prophet has said? Who cares what God has said? He wants his own way. The last time that, Paul, that Saul spoke of enemies, he talked about the Philistines back in chapter 18. And chapter 14, and now he speaks of David the same way? How twisted his mind has become by his own selfishness. See within Saul here, beloved, what, how sin darkens the mind and twists and turns things around into ways which don't reflect reality. Why have you deceived me like this? This is the second time a question has been asked in these stories. Back in verse 5, Jonathan asked a, a good question of his father. Uh, verse 5, For he took his life in his hand and struck the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? Why harm him when he's done you no wrong? And now tables are turned and... Saul asks his daughter why she's tricked him. This family is known for its deception. We're going to hear this question again in 1 Samuel, but it's going to be posed to Saul. I mentioned before the story in chapter 28 where uh, Saul goes to the medium at Endor to bring up Samuel to get some message from the afterlife. And he has, to, he has to trick her for her to go along because she tells him, she repeats to him what the law is. Look, Saul has outlawed us. How do I know you're not going to trick me and turn me in? And he makes an oath that she'll be fine. 
And of course, she doesn't know that it is Saul at all. And when Samuel actually shows up after her doing her jibbery-jabbery stuff, she freaks out. Apparently wasn't accustomed to seeing real spiritual beings like this. And she realizes right away that that's actually Saul there in disguise. And she says to him in chapter 28, verse 12, Why have you deceived me? The deception is just going around and around and around. You know, some people have the art of, of deception down to a science. It, it's really staggering. Some of them are not quite as good as they think they are. I, I won't regale you with the story of the... There was a funeral I preached at one time where there were a number of po folks, friends of the deceased, who had a dark past, we'll say. And uh, one of them stole my phone <laughs> at the funeral <laughs> and then felt bad and gave it back with this excuse, hoping that then I would give him money uh, as a thank you. And... Uh, Fortunately, by God's grace, I saw through that ruse. So some people who think they're really good at deception aren't so good. I'll, I'll share with you the details some other time. But McCall here is lying, and her alibi is a lie. And the lie is that David said he would kill me if I didn't do all of this. Apparently, McCall has learned from her father how to get out of trouble. She says he's threatened to do to her what Saul was threatening to do to him. And, and there's not a word of truth in that. If you look now with me at the end of verse 17, you see her lie. Now, McCall said to Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I put you to death? There's not a word of truth to that. But, you know, the, the way this is set up, there is no way in the world that Saul can test it. It is a tight alibi. She put on a good show for her dad, and it worked. Compare with me the speech of McCall here with that of her brother earlier in the chapter. Earlier in the chapter, Jonathan goes to his dad and says, Dad, you should do that which is honorable and that which is right. David hasn't done anything. He's upfront and direct and honest, and she's the exact opposite. Her speech is not so honorable as her brother's was, but her speech is still effective. With all of her imperfections and her shortcomings and her mixed motives, look how God uses her for his purposes to bring some deliverance to David. It's, it's just like the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, that God works all things together for good to those who love God. He can even use the sinful reactions of other people for good. Isn't that amazing? What a sovereign God we have. So we've worked through this part of the story. I want us to circle back, though, to the uncertain actions that McCall commits here. And for us to think about whether what she does here is right or wrong. The first thing that strikes us is a reference to idolatry. Look at verse 13 again. McCall took the household idol and laid it on the bed. Household idol? Verse 16 mentions it too. What in the world is that, and why in the world is that in their house? The Hebrew word for this household idol is the word teraphim. Teraphim. It's a plural word, that im 
part on the end could mean more than one of them. Or it might even be what we sometimes call a plural of majesty, like Elohim is the one God, but the plural form is used. The exact meaning of teraphim is debated by scholars, but what is known is that these were, as it's translated here, household idols. Usually small, often kept someplace within the house, although you could take them when you were traveling. We're told in Genesis 31 uh, that uh, Rachel was able to hide hers in her saddlebag, her father's, that she had stolen from him. Um, and, and Archaeologists have found some of them. This is uh, some Canaanite teraphims. These are clay, um, and some of them could be depictions of various gods. Some of them might even be long-lost ancestors that one could pray to. And these sorts of things were used only in people's homes. This is not the sort of thing you would take to church. Uh, they didn't use these in the temples or in the high places. This was for home use, and you might hold them and pray to them and ask them to help you or think that they would bring you good luck. Uh, some of them, are, most of them are, are small, so we're talking about uh, bobblehead height, let's say. But McCall, the king's daughter, apparently has a pretty big one, big enough that it can make a lump in the bed to look like a person. Now, the Old Testament explicitly condemns these sorts of things. I mean, you've got, of course, the, 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 the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself any graven image or any likeness of anything that's in the heaven above, the earth beneath, the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I mean, that commandment has one of the longest expositions of all. And later on in Exodus 20, verse 23, God again says, You shall not make other gods besides me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. In the days of King Josiah in 2 Kings 23, 24, uh, we're told Josiah removed the mediums and the spiritists and the teraphim and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem that he might confirm the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. They were not permitted. Now, based on what we read about David in the book of Samuel and the rest of the Bible, I think we can assume that these teraphim were not his. They probably belonged to McCall. She brings them into the marriage. She brings them into the house. I don't know if she keeps them hidden from David or what, but... But this raises all kinds of questions. What in the world is the daughter of the king of Israel doing with household idols? And what does that say about Saul himself? Samuel might have even hinted at this problem in Saul's life before. Because when he gives him the prophecy back in 1 Samuel 15, verse 23, that he's going to lose his kingdom... He explains to him why it is that the, sin, the sins that he's committed are so bad. And uh, look with me at 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, that's witchcraft, 
And insubordination is as iniquity and, what's your version say? Idolatry. The Hebrew word is teraphim. Popular idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king, the prophecy goes on to say. So it turns out from here in chapter 19 that Saul's family was actually dabbling in some kind of idolatry. It's not the first time that descendants of Abraham have done this. I I mentioned before from Genesis 31 that when Jacob came from Haran and he brought his wife Rachel and his wife Leah and all of that mess, uh, Rachel stole her father's teraphim probably because they're valuable. And uh, Laban is upset, and he comes down, and he's fuming. He's looking everywhere for it, and she hit him. uh, Hit him under her saddlebag. It's a problem that has persisted throughout Israel, throughout generations, something that the prophets would thunder against. And here, how sad that the first king of Israel has a taint of it within his family. Now, another question that we uh, have as we read the story of McCall is, why did she put that thing in the bed? Wasn't there something else she could ball up and put in the bed? Why did it have to be that? And some theorize, and it's just a theory, but maybe she thought that using the idol as the dummy would somehow magically help David and help things go well. Maybe she had some superstitions that trusting in these teraphim to do some work for them would help. And yet when you read what David says in Psalm 59 about these events, it's clear that his trust is in the Lord. The Lord is his refuge and not in anything else. McCall might be trusting the teraphim to save David, but he's trusting in the Lord. All right, now before we stomp all over McCall's memory, let's remind ourselves that each one of us have a propensity to be idol makers. Idolatry takes many different forms, and the form here in the Bible is usually what we could call formal idolatry where there's actual physical things that are made in images that are utilized in worship. But the Bible also speaks of other kinds of idolatry. Where the manufacturing of the thing isn't in the physical world, it's in the mind. Where we imagine things to be so important, so necessary, so desirable that we must have them at all costs. And we turn that desired thing could even be a person. It could be a situation. We turn it into an idol. We turn it into a little God that we think we have to have in order to be fulfilled. That's why the Apostle Paul warns about covetousness, which he says is what? Covetousness, which is idolatry. The thought that that thing, that situation, that desired goal, I must have it. Uh, no, you're, you're removing God from his rightful place and making something else, something silly into a God. And it's place. What a 
dumb thing to do. You see, because one thing that this story shows right about idols is that they're just dummies. They have no power. They can't do a thing. And those who worship them become like them. And so we, when we replace our desires and have our Lord, we stupefy ourselves by holding on to things that don't matter. So this is one concern we have with her in this story. And the other one is the dishonesty. Several times in the story, it's sort of Saul sent messengers, sent messengers. And every, every time something is said about Saul sending messengers, there's a response from a call that's either secretive or deceptive. It turns out her, his daughter is more clever and wily than he is. And she might not have been all that more spiritual than him. There was nothing at all wrong with letting David escape. That was good. But the falsehoods she utters are a problem. Now, I think you can make an, a case, an ethical, biblical, theological case, that there are some forms of deception that are, in certain places, um, permissible. I, I think particularly in circumstances of war. There are even times where a, a prophet will tell a king to fake like you're going here, but you're really going there. But that's not really this kind of situation. You notice that the lies that McCall makes are mostly to help herself and not to help David, particularly at the end. You can't help but see a contrast between her actions and speech and David's uh, and Jonathan's. Jonathan does some things in secret. Yes, he talks to David secretly, but he doesn't hide behind lies. He is direct and honest. She's indirect and devious. And I want you to think about the long-term impact of her last lie in particular, where he said, well, he said he was going to kill me. Ah, now, whether Saul completely believes her or not, he has just given Saul ammo that he can use in his long chase after David that he is a a threat that needs to be put down. And that last lie she makes, again, it didn't do a thing to help David. It was purely to save herself. So, in a way, she lets David down twice in this story. Once through the window (laughs) and another time with her lie. And as the stories go on, we see how while David cares for McCall, she's not always so fully supportive of him. And one of the saddest stories is when David, in 2 Samuel 6, when he's become king and he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem to make Zion the center of worship, and he takes off his royal garments and he's dressed just in an ephod and he's dancing around with everyone else and very undignified, very unkinglike, and she scoffs at him. Oh, wasn't the king magnificent today? This is the high point of David's career. And she's embarrassed. And part of, the, part of the punishment she receives is that not only is it true that her father would not have a dynasty, but she would not have a line of children herself. Nonetheless, in this story, with all her faults and all her failings and her imperfections, God uses her as a hero as she literally helps David out. She's one of three heroes that God uses to save his chosen one. 
Next week, we'll come back to this chapter and finish it and look at Samuel, the kingmaker, the one who had anointed Saul and anointed David. And we'll see how Saul is undone, and he loses all sense of dignity, royal dignity, but not in the voluntary way of David. It's in a way of complete powerlessness. Did you know that today is Pentecost Sunday? This is the the time of the year where we commemorate how the Holy Spirit inaugurated the church in the book of Acts. Next Sunday, we're going to look at this story which mentions the work of the Spirit in a very, very unusual way as He poured Himself out on people in in a way that actually brought judgment. But the good news for us is that the Spirit of God who is present at Pentecost, who was present in David's life, is present in our lives, present to accomplish all the purposes that good King Jesus has ordained for us. And the Spirit of God is no dummy. He knows how to orchestrate all of the trials and the adversities and the uncertainties of our life to take the dark nights of our soul, those difficult days that we go through, and to weave them together into God's good plan. Because it is of Him and through Him and to Him that all things are. He is marching forward with the plan of the ages. And if you are in Jesus Christ, you have a place in that plan for good and for glory. Join me, please, in prayer. Our Lord, we thank you for the time we've had this morning to look at your work in David's life, your grace to him, your protecting him. You're using even imperfect people who were compromised in and, and, and their lifestyles. You are able to cause grace to abound to us in wonderful ways. So may we take encouragement to see how you can protect and guide and keep. And Lord, may we also take caution as we consider the failings of McCall and how she was compromised by the spirit of her age with one foot in the things of God and another foot in the things of the world. May we be more like Jonathan. May we be more like David, men who are given over to your spirit and your plan and your kingdom. We lift up this prayer and ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.